Welcome, folks, to God versus God. This is season two, episode six. Welcome, Andrew. Good to see hey. you. Hey. Good to see you. Uh, our twenty-first episode overall, if you believe it, uh, wow. kind of an astounding number. I, we we as we often joke about, we tend to land right around the ninety-minute mark. Yep. Uh, for an episode, which of course designed to be the perfect length for listening to on your commute, as long as you work three states away from. <laughs> so I was thinking about that, and I did a little bit of uh, of time math, if you will, just to get a sense of what what that that amount of audio means. So by the end of this episode, if my math is correct. Mm-hmm. If we stick to our 90 minute average, we're going to be right. around the 1,890 minute mark. So about 31 and a half hours of Oof. content that is, of course, top quality, right. rigorously researched, scientifically sound. So to me, that's quite a body of work. It certainly seems like it. Then again, I asked myself, well, how would that overall duration compare to, say, the audio version of a great, you know, sizable book, right? Just just right. To, little apples and apples. So at least in quantity. So I started with The Stand, you know, Stephen King, giant book. Uh, audio book for The Stand clocks in at 47 hours, 52 minutes. And we are at a mere 31 and a half. So he's blowing right by us in terms of, of quantity. Yeah. So up in the ante a little bit. What about The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, right? Another big classic book. It's got the rise and the fall in there. It's a lot of ground yeah. to cover. 57 hours and 11 Ooh. minutes. Yeah, All so right. really putting us to shame. So I then I just I swung for the fences. I said, what about the complete King James version of the Bible? In audiobook form, 86 hours and 19 minutes. Now, Ooh. that's especially impressive, quality and quantity, because as we know, that is the most best, best-selling book of all time. Right. I didn't know this. It is the best-selling book of the year every year. So it is continually... Just wow. breaking records, yeah. Which is kind of astounding, seeing as that virtually nobody reads it front to back. I did, <laughs> I did uh, freshman year of college shortly before you and I met. Uh, um, yeah, it, it drags a little in, in, in parts. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you got some shocking plot twists. You know, some characters yeah. go away then come back. A really wild ending. Um, but eighty six hours a night. That's a that's a commitment. So, by comparison, if God versus God is is weighing in at a mere thirty one and a half hours, that corpus of of content may may be rather slim. So, right. the way I think about it, with this podcast, you're kind of getting the best of all worlds, right? You're getting the the apocalyptic horror of Stephen King <laughs> in the content. You're getting all the grotesquerie of of the Nazis. You're getting all the sort of page turning, you know, divine hijinks of the good book. <laughs> all in a, all in a single package that that in total weighs one sixth the length of all of those audiobooks combined. So I don't know. To me, that seems like a bargain. Yeah. Yeah. Today. We're yeah. today so far. That's right. So <laughs> we are giving you all that time back that sort of 50 plus hours, just giving it all back to go live your life. So that is our service to you, dear listener. And we're we're glad to do it. So there's yep. your there's your time math to get us warmed up. Uh, anything you'd care to add to those calculations or shall we dive straight in? No, I know, you know, you do, it does make you wonder when the, the transcripts of this in future generations That's right. will be studied and uh, placed <laughs> in motels uh, throughout the country. I certainly, for, for their sake and, that's the, and, goal. and, and the sake of getting a good night's sleep, I hope that's not true. Well, <laughs> then let us dive straight in. Uh, season two, episode six. So Horace versus Patah. And, and I, I hope I'm getting that right. I had to look that up. Yeah. Uh, initially thought the P might be silent. Uh, but then I realized, you know, you've got, because you see words like pneumonia, Ptolemy, yep. you know, my new favorite, psychopomp. 
they have these nice silent P's at the beginning. But those are, of course, all Greek words. And pata is Egyptian, where apparently yes. the P is pronounced. It is pronounced, yes. So we will be going pata. You will regale us with, with your tales of pata. Tales of pata, yeah. <laughs> the second segment of uh, this program. But we'll, we'll start with, with Horace. So yep. let's dive in on that. And of course, as always, made the best god win. For sure. Horus, the uh, the tutelary deity of ancient Egypt, meaning a original source of protection. Now, of course, along with protection, the god of kingship, the pharaoh of pharaohs, if you like, uh, of healing mm-hmm. the sun and the sky. He is known as the sky god. And so why don't we just have uh, have you take a look at an image uh, of Horus and see what you make of him. All right. And can you see it? All right. Yes, I'm seeing him now. Um uh... And we have uh, a falcon-headed uh, fella. Falcon, um, that's right, that's right. And and he he's got uh, kind of a fetching uh, crown on. Uh, I I believe that's the the double crown. Is double it's crown. Half red, half white. That's correct. Um, he he's you know got that side pose. Got the mm-hmm. onk. He's got the scepter, uh, assuming that he is ruling. Wearing the man's skirt. Yes. Um, look like he's posed for action. Very good. Very good. I think you got you got all the good ones. The falcon head, uh, hard to miss. That's a striking, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's first striking feature. Yes. Uh, but you also mentioned the the double crown. That's correct. So that is known right. as the Pichent. So yeah. speaking, of, speaking of lack of silent P, there we have another hard P that is most certainly not silent. And yes, that double crown is uh, is a is two parts, one for each half of the country. So we've talked before about Upper Egypt, Lower Egypt, yep. sort of the red part and the white part. Uh, that crown combines the white head jet crown of Upper Egypt with the red deshret crown of Lower Egypt. Not only that, the different colors, but each one also has an animal that symbolizes a weapon. Okay. So the red one has a cobra ready to strike. The white half has a vulture that's ready. I guess to eat whatever the the the, the uh, snake kills, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. To eat the uh, the, the roadkill, uh, and this crown was worn by a number of pharaohs. So we you know we see it on Horus here, but of course he was the the sort of one of the original pharaohs and lent his tradition to many of the rest. So it it, it represents that as pharaoh with the two headed crown, the two part crown. You you represent you rule over all of Egypt, not just the part you like, yeah, or the part you're from. Now I. Couldn't help but imagine what the equivalent of that would be in contemporary America, where you've got sort of your <laughs> color and your weapon of choice. So I would guess, what do you think? The red side would be red, but it would have like an AR-15 rifle, maybe a, <laughs> like a Fox News logo. Uh, the blue side, what would the weapon be there? Like judgment, uh, shame, <laughs> white privilege, yeah. hard, hard to say. <laughs> all right. uh, but you mentioned all the accessories uh, in addition to that falcon head and the crown. You know, you've got the ankh, the gold skirt, the tail. All the trappings uh, of Egyptian deity on the go, out and about, looking good, doing it. Uh, one thing you did not identify, Andrew, is mm. the fact that Horus has two different types of eyes. Now, oh, no. he's got the right eye, which resembles the sun or the morning star and represents power, quintessence. The left eye represents the moon or the evening star, which represents healing. Now, you can be forgiven for missing that because this is ancient Egypt. You can only see one of his eyes <laughs> right. because he's yeah, always shown true. in profile. So. Uh, still a good reminder that for for all of their uh, advances and cultural richness, ancient Egypts didn't take pes- didn't take kindly to that sort of pesky three dimensional thing in art. <laughs> no. um, so, it was presumably perspective would be invented eventually, but it hadn't gotten to it yet. So, 
in your mind, picture the two different eyes. We'll get to that in a little bit. So I mentioned protection. There's this early version of Horus who was associated with being the protector and the kingships where where all pharaohs are a manifestation of him. Um, There was even a time when Horus was equated with our old pal and season one finalist, Apollo from the Greco-Roman tradition. Um, But don't get too excited because Mm. uh, Plutarch would point out those associations with this older form of Horus, which is known as Horus the Elder. So sort of an ancient form. Not not really the same guy that we're talking about on this program. Uncle so, Horus. Well, not even that. Just different <laughs> okay. guys, same name. So, like most of what we know about right. Horus, you know, is is this newer version, which which technically makes makes our Horus Horus the younger, although technically not a descendant. He's in the same occupation, has the same name, just a totally different version. So the <laughs> closest analogy I can think of is like Elvis Presley and Elvis Costello, right? They're <laughs> not related, but they do share a name. So yeah. We've heard a bit about Horus uh, in the season so far. He's made a couple of appearances in two of the episodes. Um, first, of course, we encountered him in episode two Yep. on Osiris. He was memorably uh, posthumously conceived by King Osiris and Queen Isis. Uh, posthumous, of course, because the queen used her magic uh, when her husband, the king, had been sliced up and scattered. Used her magic to gather up those pieces that had been scattered about, put them back together, uh, fashioned, depending on who you believe, a golden phallus to replace uh, what was what was missing and thrown to the fishes, uh, brought him back from the dead, immediately got down to business, and right. Horus was conceived. So uh, as a young man after Horus was born, of course, Isis kept her son hidden from Set, the god of chaos, their enemy, yep. um, so he wouldn't freak out if, if she found that, he, that Osiris and, and Isis had fathered this child, which Set would definitely freak out if he found that yeah. out. Um, every example tells us that. So she keeps him hidden so that one day Horus can grow up and finally exact revenge on set for, of course, killing Osiris. Um, not once, but twice. So seeking double revenge. Yeah. So the first entire part of his life, Horus is just in hiding. Uh, he spends he's hiding in the swamps of the Nile. You, you see images of him as a young boy with a finger to his lips as if to say, Shh, I'm hiding. Don't. <laughs> don't, don't blow my cover. Be very quiet. I'm hiding from a madman. Um, and eventually he does He does achieve that purpose, which, of course, uh, we meet up a little later with Horace once he's grown a little bit in episode three, which is on the aforementioned set, the god of chaos. And, yes. of course, you and listeners will, will recall the centerpiece tale of that episode, the contendings of Horace and Set, in which the precocious youngster uh, does this sort of decades-long battle royale with his murderous uncle to determine who should be the rightful king of Egypt. And I don't have to remind you, it's a, it's a long, sorted tale. You've got shape-shifting into hippos, breath-holding contests, eye-gouging, testicle theft, you know, boat races, all sorts of different <laughs> events to this, this <laughs> yeah. bizarre 80-year Olympics. Yes. Um, in between, of course, I set also manages to seduce his nephew Horace and somehow impregnate him. It's one of the darker chapters of the podcast, which is really right. saying something. <laughs> yeah. uh, but in the end, of course, in, in what I consider to be something of a of an anticlimax, the uh, the tribunal after eighty years of this competition essentially just lets Osiris choose his own successor after all that. <laughs> and the king says, "Let's see, oh, between my heroic young son and my brother who killed me twice." Yeah, I'm going to go with my son on this one. So he unsurprisingly votes for his son Horus to become king, and he he does. He 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 reigns from there. So that's where we left the story, right? Uh, back in episode three, but there is there is a little more to the story which we didn't mention. Okay. So um, Horus did not emerge from the process unscathed. Of course, there was a lot of violence that happened, right. uh, but physically and emotionally, I would think. <laughs> yeah. uh, 
And in the ongoing skirmish, I alluded to this quickly in, in that account, but Set actually gouged out one of Horace's eyes. And being Set, not only sort of took the eye, but then cut it into six pieces because they're you know, chopping up <laughs> the, the body parts. Classic Set. It's definitely his yeah. signature move. Go to. Yes. And depending who you believe, um, most people think Thoth, the god of wisdom, whom you covered in episode three, who is kind of the bailiff and the referee of their ongoing kerfuffle. He was able to restore the eye of Horus. Yeah. And it becomes this sim- this long-lasting symbol called the Watjot. There's no silent P in that, just a bunch <laughs> of letters. And that symbol, the eye of Horus, kind of similar to the eye of Ra, which we've talked about before, it sort of becomes known all throughout Egypt for well-being, for healing, protection. Some even think it has magical powers. So they use it on funerary amulets. They mm-hmm. will put the eye symbol on a ship to protect it at sea. They'll even etch it onto a bracelet uh, of the dead before you are mummified. So according to this legend, the six pieces of the eye, the eye of Horus also represent the six senses. Now, I know what you're thinking, Andrew. Yeah. Aren't there only five senses? Well, not in ancient Egypt, they're not. There is a sixth sense, and it's not like a movie with Bruce Willis and his brilliant <laughs> little guest star, his 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 toupee. No, for the Egyptians, uh, thought was the sixth sense. So all oh. the ones we know about plus thinking. So the Eye of Horus had a much more, also this more celestial meaning than just the symbol. As Horus was the sky god, he contained the sun and the moon. Of course, he's the falcon, so he takes shows up in the sky, but the sun and the moon are part of him. And as I mentioned a moment ago, one of his eyes represented each of those, the sun with one, the moon with the other, because he had one good eye, and then the one that was gouged out, cut up, replaced. Uh, one of the eyes is brighter than the other, and that is why the sun is brighter than the moon. Oh, wow, that is science. Once again, <laughs> another purely scientific rationale for astronomy only to be found on this podcast. So uh, another thing we did not mention in the previous episode was that after all the contendings of Horus and Set, as the new king, when Horus finally took the throne, became pharaoh, he did not end up killing his defeated uncle in order to avenge his father's death, which I would assume that he would. And once you're going through all that, uh, you'd put him on. Didn't even send him like a torture chamber. Didn't even send him to the underworld. He, in fact divides up the realm and gives some to set as a consolation prize. Uh, now, Horus takes essentially all the good stuff. He takes the fertile yeah. lands around the Nile, of course, the core of Egyptian civilization. He gives set the the deserts, you know, the foreign lands kind of on the outskirts. So, yeah, the victor gets all the good stuff. But yeah. in this divvying process, Horus is able to restore order to Egypt after 80 years of conflict. Because remember, they're, they're going at this for 80 straight years. Right. The nation is divided. I would make some kind of quip about what would happen after an American election if the loser got to, you know, sort of keep the least attractive parts of the country as a consolation prize. I couldn't quit come up with that, so I will leave that as is. Uh, but as king, Horus then takes on the nature of his father. He finally has his old job after all that work and becomes a, a version of Osiris. So this aspect of Horus is known as Golden Horus Osiris. Okay which sort of makes him like the George W. Bush of his day. Just, you know, <laughs> namesake takes the old game. Yeah. Uh, of course, the the the, the triumph of, of Horus over Set uh, was renowned throughout the land for, for a long time. It, it led to the creation of this festival of, of victory. So this annual festival where they would perform this sacred drama to depict the victory of Horus over Set. Now, the cool thing here, when they would do this reenactment, the role of Horus in the play would be played by the king of Egypt himself. The the pharaoh would actually would, would oh. step on stage and play the role. 
Uh, which is nice. especially, I mean, it's impressive because, you know, you recall, this is a very colorful story. You've got eye gouging, <laughs> you know, technical t- testicle stuff, seduction. So not an easy role to play. Certainly not a glamorous role to play for the king. Yeah. Um, but but he would do it as a sort of reminder that I am the descendant of of this pharaoh, uh, the original pharaoh as a pharaoh myself. Uh, the role of Set would be played by an actual hippopotamus. So they would <laughs> just cart one out. And in... in <laughs> Seems dangerous. Well, you'd think so, but the stakes were high because at the end of the performance, the king would essentially commemorate the victory by actually spearing the hippo. So the king himself, as portraying Horace, would have to kill the hippo, and by doing so, would sort of gain would 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 essentially confirm his legitimacy as king. Okay. So if he's able to kill the hippo, he can stay king. If he's not, he's not legitimate (laughs) anymore. So. I thought this was a very cool idea. And like the idea, you know, the kings were willing to do this. I got very excited about the tradition once I learned about it. Over time, it turns out this got watered down a bit. I think they started strong uh, when they realized the stakes were that high. Maybe the pharaohs dialed back a little bit. So over time, the king, you know, would start to delegate the performance to a a priest to let him handle it. Um, (laughs) The hippo was then replaced by a model, um, which I'm guessing means a model hippo, not like an actual... (laughs) Like a, yeah. a supermodel or a fashion model, which would be interesting in its own way. Uh, so not as cool as the original version, but that festival right. of victory, nonetheless, a very popular and, and lasting annual tradition. So, interesting. you know, wrapping it up, Horace, you know, th- th- that's about all we know about him was beloved, was worshipped for quite a while all throughout the country as a result of, of, of the kind of healing of the country he was able to do through those efforts. Uh, you know, for a guy who was born to a dead man as a purely an <laughs> instrument of revenge. I mean, yeah, it took him 80 years. It cost him an eye and a and a nut. He had to become a hippo, had to be defiled by his uncle, cheated at a boat race, but finally, you know, got the job done, regained the throne, and to his credit, had the class to divvy up part of the Kent kingdom of Egypt to set, to bring resolution, to bring the sense of unity to all of Egypt. And so from there to this day, perhaps, he uh, he's still out there in the sky, the sky god looking after us. Uh, keeping his his broken yet watchful eye out for us <laughs> even now. And right. even in these troubled times, should he make it through this uh, competition, this round of competition on God versus God, is perhaps willing and ready uh, to stand up for us and protect us again. Excellent. And really that is that is Horace. All right. So we'll leave him there. We, yes. you know, he comes with a great deal of introduction. Patah we have not heard about. So he's no. really the uh, the fresh new character on the program. Uh, we'll just take a moment here to regain ourselves and uh, be back after this break and hear all about Patah. All right. All right, and we are back. And yes, that is true. I do have Patah with a hard P. Patah, okay. Patah. Patah was the god of craftsmen architects builders and metalsmiths hmm. now he is also a demiurge and a demiurge uh, via platonic philosophy is the maker or creator of the world uh now i know what you're gonna say but wasn't that autumn raw we'll, we'll, we'll get to that but yeah uh, yeah he, he was also the god of fire and uh so therefore was most often associated with hephaestus in the hmm. greek pantheon and, sure. and vulcan so uh, in terms of etymology, pata is probably derived from the word for sculpting or sculptor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, again, he sculpted the world. He becomes associated with sculptors. Uh, though I also saw uh, 
the word opener as, as a possible hmm. uh, derivation for Bataan, and that's going to come up uh, later as well. So Bataan is maybe not a household name <laughs> these days. At least not, not, not in this household, but uh, maybe yeah. not yet. <laughs> yeah, not not your your casual Egyptian gods fan, but right, right. You know, back in the day, he 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 was a big deal. Pe- people knew him, um, mm. and that was uh, no nowhere more true than in his hometown of Memphis, mm. uh, which is where he's from. So, all season long, as I said, we've been talking about Ra or Autumn Ra as the creator of the universe. But in Memphis, you know, they had other ideas, and and Ptah was regarded as the creator of the world and all the gods. So before we get too far into that, I'm going to have us take a look at Ptah. Yes. Share that. And Matt will give us uh, his description. All right. Can you see him? I can see him. Yes. So I see a very, uh, dare I say, unusual looking fellow. Um, (laughs) He's got what appears to be very bright green skin. Yes. Uh, he appears to have blue hair. Um, he's got one of those long kind of chin beards, uh, like, you know, Lincoln Park style. Yeah. Very impressive. Uh, he appears to be mostly mummified. So it looks like from about the neck down, uh, he is in mummy wrap. Um, yes. Although his arms appear to be somehow sticking out of the mummy <laughs> wrap from an unusual angle. Yeah. Uh, yes. So he still maintains the mummy wrap. He seems to be standing on some sort of little blue platform and he's carrying what appears to be uh, some sort of big staff. So some kind of striped big staff looks like it has that sort of uh, set animal shape at the end to uh, connote power. Uh, But it's a, it's the type of staff we've not seen before. And what I do not see is an Ankh. Ah, it is hidden is hidden. Okay. So he's keeping the Ankh. uh, He's got like a conceal and carry for the Ankh. It's on, it's (laughs) on his person somewhere. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, but no, no man skirt, uh, no tail. So it appears to be a, a fairly different look than uh, some of the last folks we've covered here. Yes, that's true. All right, so I'm going to stop the share. Uh, and I think you, you described that uh, quite well. Um, that you mentioned his green hair. Uh, I'm sorry, his green skin. Yes. Uh, and that is true. He has green skin, and that is to symbolize his uh, connection to life and regeneration. Uh, and what you term the blue hair is actually a skull cap, and, and that is hmm. is associated with uh, craftsmen and metal workers. That's the kind of cap they would kind of wear to not burn off their hair uh, when they're when they're working with the fire. Smart. So that that's a bit of a shout out to those those uh, supporters of his. Yes. Um, and of course, that staff scepter that he has, and the onk is actually in that scepter Mm. it's it's kind of hidden in there but but it is in the scepter he's got the waz the the scepter of rule and then at the top of it there's some lines i don't know if you noticed that are are said to be it's called the dej pillar okay and it is said to be the backbone of osiris oh me and it symbolizes endurance endurance and stability but it was you know, kind of a relic of I'm carrying around uh, part of Osiris's uh, backbone with me. And so. Osiris went through, as we've discussed, quite a bit. So that <laughs> backbone would be especially strong. Yes. Uh, and apparently he wasn't using it. So, uh, <laughs> and, and, of course, you also noted the mummy outfit. Um, yeah. Now, 
I, it's hard to kind of pin down why Ptah is, is usually shown in mummy form. Hmm. Uh, yeah, perhaps he saw it on Osiris and just thought, that, that looks good. It's good luck, yeah. <laughs> That's a good luck. <laughs> you know, uh, may, maybe he likes the idea of being swaddled, you know, some babies. Sure. Like, and he's, oh, this is a cozy. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, but one, one source did claim that uh, he, he's in mummy form because uh, Ptah is in a state of changeless perfection, oh. just like a mummy. Okay. Um, but he he does also have a bit of a, a connection to mummies in in his sort of day job. I mentioned that opening that that maybe that was one of the possible derivations for uh, the word Ptah, and uh, he is uh, at the ceremony of the opening of the mouth, which is the ceremony where he has a little uh, little knife and cuts open uh, the mouth of all all the dead mummified. Egyptians so that they will be able to breathe in the um, afterlife. So I'm sure they appreciate so, that. Yeah. You know, it, it's not a, not a, a big task, but it, it's got to add up in, in time. <laughs> sure. Every, every time somebody, yeah. Every time somebody dies. So, um, in any case, changeless perfection or not, but also, um, has other forms that he's sometimes pictured at one of which is as a dwarf oh. or as a bull. And we'll talk about both of those a little bit later. But I wanted to go into the the epithets of Osiris because I always think that's kind of a good way to figure out how he was viewed by the ancient Egyptians themselves. So sure, kind, kind of some of his nicknames. Uh, so first one is Ptah, the begotten of the first beginning. Hmm. Ptah, the god who made himself be god. So he's yeah. he's a self starter. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Literally a self-made man. That's impressive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is um, the Lord of Life again? That association with plants and regeneration. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Ptah, he who listens to prayers. So he listens, um, but <laughs> not always clear that he answers them or no. that people are going to like the answers, which, which we're going to see uh, <laughs> later. So I like this one particularly. This is Ptah, master of ceremonies. Oh, yeah. Kind of so your MC for the night. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so uh, that, and in the New Kingdom, that was shortened to MC Ptah. Uh, so. <laughs> That's nice. Biffy. Yeah. Uh, Ptah, who is south of the wall. Hmm. It's a nice little That's directional. That actually was the directions yes. uh, to, to his temple in Memphis, <laughs> literally. Exit 34. Yeah. Who is south of the wall? <laughs> uh, so, and then they have uh, Ptah, Lord of the Year. Now, I don't know which year that was that he was Lord of the Year, but at least once he won it, which, which in the 3,000-year history of, of Egyptian religion, you would hope he would get one yeah. in there. Yeah, <laughs> out of pure numbers, you'd hope that'd be the case, yeah. All right. Uh, Ptah, Lord of Destiny, who creates fortune. Hmm. And then uh, Ptah the Dwarf. Which, again, <laughs> Straightforward, yeah. Yeah, I guess he's got that dwarf form, so... Mm -hmm. In terms of origin, uh, you know, Ptah has no parents. Uh, he's he's always regarded as self-created. Mm -hmm. um, but there were, you know, as we've already come across, different takes on what his role in creation mm. was. So the closer you are to Memphis, the more it is that, yeah, he, he was the one who, who did all of creation. Uh, but there's some different forms of that. So the full Memphis version where... Ptah is self-created and then through his mere thoughts 
creates the other gods and then the rest of creation mm. and there's no role for autumn raw or, or a moon it's just it's all pata mm -hmm. so um and the memphis philosophy is best expressed by uh, what's known as the shabaka stone which is mm. An 8th century BCE text engraved in stone originally displayed in Ptah's temple. Um, and it purports to be, like in the intro it says, uh, this is a copy of an even older text. Mm. Uh, but we're going to put it in stone now because it, it's fallen apart. So mm. in part it states, Ptah, who made all and created the gods, and he is Mount Benben, who gave birth to the gods, and from whom everything came forth, foods, provisions, divine offerings, all good things. Mm -hmm. Thus, it is recognized and understood that he is the mightiest of the gods. And so, they had to write that down. You got you know, to <laughs> document that appropriately. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, this wasn't in his temple, but right. uh, the, 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 the priests in his temple certainly felt that. <laughs> yes. Um, and they had it. It was right up there in stone. So you're yes. hard to argue with. Nope. That's right there. It's Yep. So there's one slight variation of this uh, where this full Memphis version where Ptah makes the gods, he creates the heavens and the earth, but he does outsource the creation of humans and animals to a god named uh, Kemunu, who is a pottery god. So he uses clay to make the animals, but uh, this is just a slight variation. Uh, however, once you get outside of Memphis, uh, you know, Ptah was sometimes held to be synonymous with the Nun, which, if you recall, was that primordial water into which Ra is born. So they just sort of demote Ptah to saying, like, okay, you gave you're the water that gave birth to Ra, but then Ra did everything else. Once so, you get outside of Memphis, his role is downgraded significantly. Yes, yes, yes significantly. Right. And he just got the ball uh, rolling. So uh, there's a summary uh, via the, of the Egyptian historian uh, Manitho, who was working out of Alexandria, and, and the summary says that Manitho wrote, the first god in Egypt is Ptah, who is also renowned among Egyptians for the discovery of fire. His son, Ra, was succeeded by Shu, and then followed by Geb, and then so on and so forth. Um, and it says, these were the first to hold sway in Egypt through 13,900 years. The year I take, however, to be a lunar one, consisting of 30, day, 30 days, which we now call a month. Which I thought was just kind of interesting that, that that was, they said, oh yeah, they used to have, uh, year, years were just a month. And so that would have put it about like 460 years that the gods, all that stuff happened Yeah, yeah. Uh, before the first pharaohs came around. So um, then kind of there's one last version, which is kind of a, why can't we all get along uh, sort of version <laughs> where Ra, Atum, Ptah, Amun are all sort of co-creators. They all share the same byline. Uh, and they so, say, yeah, they work together. They got it done. Let's not worry about it too much. Okay. More of a collab as they were. <laughs> it, was, it was a collabo. Yes. yes. <laughs> the world is a collabo. Right. Uh, so, you know, then in, in mythology, Ptah kind of plays that minor role in, through that whole myth cycle with the rebellion against Ra, the Osiris myths, Horus. Um, he may have served on that deadlocked uh, jury mm. for Horus and Set, um, you know, but uh, he didn't have a lot to do. However, once we get out of uh, 
the mist cycle, he starts showing up again and starts taking some actions, which I think mm-hmm. are kind of interesting. So when we get to the formation of pharaonic Egypt proper, uh, Ptah takes a role in that he inspires the legendary pharaoh who unites upper and lower Egypt and sets the capital and founds Memphis. Uh, you know, he writes that he was inspired by Ptah to do this and, and to unite the country and locate his city of Memphis here by this temple of Ptah. Um, in fact, they named the city of Memphis, the name means white walls, uh, probably after the white walls of the temple of Ptah. So <laughs> he's an inspiration uh, to unite the country and make Egypt uh, one nation, according to that uh, first pharaoh. No. And then uh, he also is said to craft a body of a gold and silver alloy for every pharaoh, hmm. um, you know, maybe for the afterlife, or, or maybe it was some sort of... Uh, proto robocop pharaoh <laughs> attempt but uh if, if that was it it didn't didn't seem to stick no no they, they never really adopted that um but then a couple dynasties later uh Ptah's hanging around memphis and he falls for a beautiful singer named kara mm-hmm. and so you know he gets together with this woman um and, and she becomes pregnant uh with a boy and, and then Keridwonk wisely hands the boy over uh, to Ptah and his wife Sekhmet, who happens to be the goddess of destruction. Mm. So she hands the boy over, but they raise him, and the boy will grow up to be the first Egyptian pyramid builder, Imhotep, and he uh, is one of the relatively few Egyptian demigods. Um, and he, as I said, he builds the very first pyramid in Egypt. Uh, has a couple adventures, including uh, recovering the relics of Osiris's body from a sorceress in Syria, mm-hmm. and then is eventually deified himself and becomes associated with uh, Asclepius, who we, of course, covered in season one. Good doctor. So even though Ptah is married to the goddess of destruction, yes, when he is presented with this love child from his mistress, she does not destroy Thanks. No, she does not. She she be, she uh, becomes the stepmother uh, yeah. to to the boy and class and, uh, act Go, yeah. going against type, I would say. <laughs> yes, <laughs> very much so. That was that was her job. Not not she's she is not her job. You know, right, so. right. That's right. <laughs> uh, so, in his spare time, uh, Ptah also apparently answered prayers uh, and acts as a bit of a notary for mm-hmm. oaths uh, <laughs> in order to keep track. So, during. Fast forward all the way to the 25th dynasty, and uh, Egypt is under attack from the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians are outside the city of Pelusium, uh, which, by the way, uh, was the city that the Persians would later attack with using their cat shields. Sure. Uh, that, we, that we discussed. Yeah. So it is great, the gateway. Great to, use of animal based weaponry there. Yeah. yeah. Could forget. It, it is the gateway to Egypt, apparently. Uh, so at this time, you know, the townspeople very frightened, so they decide to pray to Ptah for mm. salvation. Uh, Ptah listens to them. He decides, all right, these, these are pretty good people. I'll, I'll cut them a break. So uh, overnight, he does this by sending from nowhere a swarm of rats to the Assyrian camp, and the rats descend on the camp. They chew through all the bowstrings on the bows and all the shield handles on the shields of the attacking army, and the Assyrians wake up, all their weapons are destroyed. Oh, man. And then they just flee and go back to Assyria. No battle. Genius. 
Yeah, so pretty good one. Pretty good one there. Uh, but then there's this funeral relief that that we find around about the same time is that uh, at a temple of Ptah outside a worker's village uh, known as the Place of Truth in ancient mm -hmm. Egypt. Mm -hmm. uh, and so one worker recorded, however, that he wasn't truthful and Ptah made him pay the price. Mm. And so this is on uh, his tomb uh, that he wrote this. So it says, I am a man who swore falsely to Ptah, the Lord of Truth, and he caused me to see darkness in the daytime. I shall speak of his powers to those who do not know him and to those who do know him. For the small and to the great people, beware of Ptah, the Lord of Truth. Behold, he does not overlook the deed of any person. Refrain from pronouncing the name of Ptah falsely. Behold, he who pronounces it falsely shall be cast down. And that's on his gravestone. That's on his gravestone. So yeah. he makes one big mistake at work, and that comes to define him well into the afterlife. And he says, but still, my boss is okay. It was on me. I take responsibility. He, he does. He, he, yeah, he says, uh, Ptah, the Lord of Truth, was just toward me and made yeah. an example of me. Wow. Uh, so That's commitment. Yeah. So 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 apparently, uh, you, know, you see darkness in daytime. So Ptah took his sight because of... He, he, he took the name Ptah in vain. So, so a little bit, of a little bit of vengefulness there. Yeah, no, yeah I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. So um, you know, as I said, he does have those two other forms of uh, one is called Ptah Patekos, and that is the dwarf shaped version of Ptah. Mm -hmm. uh, and this form Ptah is very so closely associated with blacksmithing uh, due to what was their stunted growth uh, due to prolonged early exposure to heavy metals. Oh, uh, boy. So yeah, I was gonna say that story. being being a a diminutive in size as a blacksmith seems like it would be kind of an occupational hazard of sorts. That would yes, you got to do a lot of metal slinging, and uh, being small would make that difficult. Yeah, it, it wasn't all that helpful. But uh, growing up around uh, heavy metals also was not <laughs> no, not great, not all that helpful. So, <laughs> uh, so and then his, his other form is that of a bull god, and, and this is the Apis bull. Um, and so there's a adjacent to Ptah's temple in Memphis is the temple of the Apis bull. And the Apis bull was always a living bull, uh, considered a fertility god, and was said to be the incarnation of Ptah on Earth, hmm. um, or his representative on Earth. And he's also, in addition to being his uh, incarnation, he's also sort of Ptah's child because uh, the bull was born by being struck by lightning or is conceived by being mm -hmm. struck by lightning uh, by the mother. So, you know, but there's always one Apis bull. And as soon as one died, another one had to be found out in the fields. Uh, so a little bit like kind of a, a bull oh, version of the Dal Dalai Lama. That's exactly right. Dalai Lama style, but as a bull, I like it. <laughs> yeah. So there's a precedent. Um, so via Herodotus on the Apis bull, he said, the Apis is the calf of a cow which is never afterwards able to have another the egyptian belief is that a flash of light descends upon the cow from heaven and this causes her to conceive apis the apis calf has distinct marks it is black with a white square on its forehead and the image of an eagle on its back wow the hair on its tail is double and there is a scarab under its tongue quite a look so, quite a look very striking so the priests uh, of Ptah's temple would be the ones who would find this, and they would have to search for a new Apis bull whenever the old one died. Mm -hmm. uh, they'd search the nearby fields, 
uh, you know, they just ni- needed to find a bull that was conceived by lightning. Right. Was black, had <laughs> 29 different distinctive marks, <laughs> such as the white square on its forehead. How hard uh, could special that be? markings yeah. <laughs> of the scarab under its tongue. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. How hard could it be? But they were able to find one uh, every time for over 3,000 years. Nice. Uh, whenever they needed a new one. So they were some good. good. Those, yeah, those priests. some impressive uh, detective work there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the, the Apis Bowl would perform uh, the running of the Apis hmm. in Memphis, which was a religious ceremony centered around... Uh, letting a 2,000 pound bull run around the temple district, sure. fertilizing the streets. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, and they would do that every year uh, to, to bless, I guess, the, the new plantings. Um, the Apis would also perform prophecies uh, based on its movement in its pen. Uh, the people would come and ask the priests questions and they would interpret oh. uh, the Apis's movement to, to give them a prophecy. So kind of a, a 2000 pound uh, magic eight ball <laughs> and and the running of of this bowl was just the one it wasn't like just Pamplona the one where you, yeah okay no so no not as dramatic as Pamplona, but it is 2000 pounds so i'm yeah. sure there was some drama involved yeah so i'm sure yeah, I'm, I'm sure it was interesting <laughs> uh fun for the kids right um, so the the and the apis bowl uh was given a harem of cows at his temple oh, nice. uh so it was, that was nice for him, but but it wasn't all easy street for uh, the incarnation of Ptah as as Apis. Uh, reportedly, when the Persian king Cambyses uh, took over Egypt, he slaughtered the then current incarnation of the Apis bull and was driven mad as a result for yeah. his sin. Bad so, idea. But in addition to that, if the any particular Apis bull lived to twenty five. It had to be killed by the priests hmm. in a ceremony, usually in the form of drowning of the bull, because it would not be able to perform its fertility functions, mm. and therefore you needed a new one. Yeah. So um, back to back to his his, his regular form. Uh, and we just wanted to mention, as we, as we heard, he was married to both Sekhmet and Bastet. Um, but I found a little clarity on that that in Memphis. His main cult center, it was only Sekhmet who, mm. who was his wife. But in Bastet's hometown of Bastus, he was considered to be married to Bastet. So, uh, you know, as far as the Memphites uh, were concerned, uh, whatever, whatever happened in Bubastus stayed in Bubastus. <laughs> and it was just Ptah and Sekhmet, uh, the goddess of destruction, along with their son, uh, Neferetum, the flower god. Right. Uh, to form that Memphis tried. And and I want to say one thing I want one last thing on kind of why you don't hear you, there's a lot of stuff that he did, but one of the reasons you don't hear so much about Ptah is in the New Kingdom, the the uh, capital of Egypt was moved from Memphis to Thebes mm. and and the Thebans didn't take so much to Ptah and, and, and sort of fell out of fashion and by the time the Romans arrive it it's kind of the Apis Bull is the main thing left. But right, he had a right. real long run. And even after that, he, he was still, you know, something to behold, uh, hanging out with the craft guys. Uh, yeah. So that's our uh, one of our candidates. Fascinating. Yeah, it's definitely a hometown hero in Memphis. But it yeah. uh, seems like his appeal was uh, maybe not limited. But uh, yeah, certainly not not as as fervent outside of the, uh, the walls. Right. Yeah, definitely. Unlike, definitely. say, Elvis Presley. Who is a hometown hero in our Memphis and remains appeal has a, a remaining appeal worldwide. Yeah, that's right. 
Outstanding. Well, that is that is far more about Patah than I already knew. Coming <laughs> yes. Thank you for that. Fresh material. <laughs> That's right. Good. Well, we've got a familiar. We've got a familiar contestant. We've got a new one. This should make for a fascinating set of uh, of our categories. So let us uh, let us prepare for those and be right, right back with those categories right after this break. All right. All right, and we are back for the category rounds, where we have five categories that will determine which of these gods goes on for a chance to win that golden ale. And we, as always, will start off with Immortal Combat, which is simply uh, who would win in a physical confrontation between these two deities. And I'm going to start us off uh, talking about Ptah. So... You know, there's not really a lot to go on here. Ptah is, again, more of a creator uh, than right. a fighter. Um, you know, that said, I, I assume he's adept with tools. He, sure. he is the god of, of, of workmen and craftsmen, you know. handle. Uh, he can handle a hammer or an axe, uh, which is good. He, he's got that scepter, mm-hmm. uh, which is a pretty good piece of, uh, uh, of wood or, or equipment there. Uh you know, nobody wants to get bashed over the head with the the spine of Osiris. No, I think no. Um, but keep in mind, however, that you know, in his main form, Ptah is sporting that half mummy look. Yes. So, so he now, unlike Osiris, you know, I don't think the wrap is structural to hold him together. Right. He doesn't need it. It's more of a fashion statement. Yeah, but it is yes. limiting to his mobility. That's so, true. <laughs> Although I suppose he could he could take the form of the bull, yes, and and do battle that way. That would be formidable. Yeah, he he's got the bull form, uh, um, which which is something you know it, a one ton bull boring down on you. That's yeah. certainly something. Um, and by all accounts, uh, the Apis bull was always uh, an impressive specimen physically. Uh, but again, there there aren't any stories of the Apis bull fighting. Uh, Right. Yeah. You know, he, he he's he's certainly a big bull, but not particularly a fighting one that we know of. Right. And then he also has has the dwarf form. Uh, not a huge advantage there, but no, he has no. it. He's, <laughs> so he's, he's, he's got it in case there's in the arsenal. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, all right. I I think with uh with Horus, you know, certainly we talk about the willingness to fight was was strong when it was required, yeah. right. So he did take on the God of chaos and at a young age, I mean, so much he'd barely finished breastfeeding as it was uh, pointed out in court on the record. Right. That's true. Uh, so he really got to business really quickly as a young man. Um, resilience. I mean, certainly battling with set for over 80 years suggests yep. a, a, a fellow who's not easily going to give up. Um, also a sense of creativity, you know, recall that after, uh, his uncle defiled him. He was able to steal his seed and then use it later in court to testify yeah. against him. I wouldn't have come up with that. That's <laughs> a very novel legal uh, approach. So give him points for creativity on that. Um, you know, talk about shape-shifting. I mean, he can, of course, as as a falcon, he can shape-shift into the, you know, the falcon-headed man, right. as we saw in that image. He can go into the full falcon, which means he can, if things get too hot, he can fly away for a while. He yep. is the god of the sky, so he can sort of escape. Um, he also has a couple of other forms uh, similar to what you're describing with Ptah. He also has one version where he has the head of a falcon and the body of a lion. 
That's pretty, it's pretty oh, scary. Yeah. yeah. Another one where there's the head of a falcon and the body of a crocodile. So presuming you can shapeshift into these different forms, a lot of versatility in battle. Yeah. Uh, any one of those, I think, could do pretty well against the uh, the, the dwarf metal worker. If that was the, <laughs> that was yeah. the battle involved. Um, it's also possible for Horus, depending on who you talk to, to possess power over the sky. As the sky god, he can cause and manipulate storms. So that's something, too, where he can, if, if the battle becomes fierce, he could suddenly just create a hurricane, and that could perhaps work to his advantage. Mm. I'm I'm also drawn to the idea that since you were, you know, so if if taking the form of that bull is the best for Patan in battle, um, right. you know, this is where the sort of resilience really might come into play because it sounds like that bull, dare I say, not unlike one of Leonardo DiCaprio's girlfriends, after about age 25 is really of no use anymore and has to be eliminated. So as a guy who can battle for 80 years straight, if anything, right. uh, I think Horace could just wait him out. And after those first 25 years, if he was in bull form, he'd be in good shape. So right, right. all those being said, I think uh, I think I might give Horace the nod on this one. All due respect uh, to Patab, but I feel right. like he's got a lot of arsenal here, a lot, a lot of weapons, a lot of tools, and I think uh, he gets my vote. He cer- certainly, Horace is more closely associated with combat. Um, I did for- forget to mention uh, or bring back up the, the rats. Uh, uh, the yeah. rat army that Patab has is, you know, that's something, but uh, but I think uh, you know, even then he was doing it really. He did it in such a way to avoid battle, right? He did it not. He did not wait for the heat of battle. He went overnight, had them attack the equipment to just fend off the army that way, which is clever. Very. But you know, again, shows to not a huge inclination towards uh, combat and violence. So I think while that's commendable, it's going to hurt him in this round. I think that's right. Uh, and so yeah. I'm going to go with Horace as well. Okay, very good. And that brings us to our second category, which is curriculum deity. Yes. And that is, which god would you rather be? Which god would you rather worship? Who has that charisma, that it factor? <laughs> so rather be. Now, you mentioned epithets before. Horace yep. did have a couple. He He was known as the distant one and one who is above over. So I already feel like I'm kind of having a kinship with him because I am also <laughs> fairly distant. I'm pretty much over whatever somebody tries to talk to me about. So I feel like we already have a certain connection there. Uh, in terms of of taking on that uh, that life and that character, I'm not sure I would want to have a falcon head that feels like it would be uh, somehow inconvenient, but the ability to fly would be kind of nice. So I would uh, score some points for that. Uh Probably most importantly, I would definitely not want to spend 80 years of my life going through everything that Horace did, um, uncle seduction parts especially, but you know, also losing a testicle, losing an eye. I mean, those those all feel like uh, unpleasant uh, experiences. Yeah. Uh, he did finish up as the king, and 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 by all accounts, you know, served served his people well, uh, but it did take a long road to get there. So I'm not sure. Of these two, I'm not sure that uh, that this is a life I would want for myself. Right, right. right. Uh, in terms of worshiping, a great longevity uh, for Horus from the very beginning, you know, through through the end of this period. So from the sort of late prehistoric Egypt, uh, through the Ptolemaic Kingdom, through Roman Egypt, so quite a run, pretty much beginning to end of the periods we talk about. Uh, and of course, as the great unifier, he's got cults that had throughout the land. He's got both Upper and Lower Egypt. Um, a lot of those. Temples are supposed to be very nice. They have little lakes and, and very pleasant nice. uh, surroundings. Um, many of them 
many of the best parts of those temples were restricted for just the priests. So they, they sort of kept the good parts themselves. But anywhere you go in Egypt, there there was uh, likely a place where, you know, as the protector god, where Horus would be, would be really well respected and, and worshipped. And as we know and from past examples, when it comes to worship, convenience is also always <laughs> nice. Having, yeah. cults, having cults everywhere helps. And I have to say, in terms of pure theater, that victory festival every year of being able to watch your king fight a hippo to determine <laughs> yeah. if they keep the old version of that. And I am I am there for that. So worship, I think, that scores some extra points for me. Uh, so dare I see between being and worshiping uh, for Horace, for me, a bit of a mixed bag. Okay. All right. Interesting. All right. So, you know, regular Pratap, you know, we don't hear a whole lot about his, his life. In general, he, he's married to Sekhmet and, and perhaps Bastet as well. Um, but not maybe because not a lot of detail survives uh, on his exploits, uh, you know, he comes off as maybe a little bit passive. Mm. Well, he's very laid back. You know, he doesn't uh, seem to take a shift on the solar bark, which everybody yeah. else seems to have to do. Yes, they do. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, he may be... Uh, busy doing his opening of the mouth procedure. Uh, so he just doesn't have time for that. Um, a lot of mouths, yeah. A lot of yeah, mouths. A lot of, uh, people just keep dying. So I, I, yep. I can't do the solar bar. I can't make it. <laughs> um, and he also apparently is, is keeping track of every oath uh, that's taken in his name and writing those down. So and he's, not that he's he doesn't have some things to do. Uh, but even in in creation, at most, he just has to name something and it brings it into existence. Sure. Or in the uh, non-Memphis version, he just created Ra, told him to go out and and <laughs> and and create uh, stuff. So he has kind of a sort of create Ra and chill. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. Very very delegate uh, friendly. Yeah, yeah. So um, which which you know for for being ha- has its upsides as well. Sure. Uh, you know for for worship, uh, there were a couple of interesting attributes. Um, because Memphis was the administrative capital of Egypt for much of the country's history, um, Ptah was also associated with kingship as well. So, um, and that's where that whole master of ceremonies thing comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, since many uh, sort of official celebrations, such as the coronation or royal weddings, uh, fell under sort of the auspices of Ptah and his priests uh, at the time, uh, would have been the ones who took care of those ceremonies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so kind of official functions. Sure. Uh, his his priests also um, would have included the royal architects uh, who would fan out across the country whenever there was an infrastructure week uh, <laughs> to support and guide guide the projects, uh, which is interesting, you know. Um, and and as I said, uh, Patel was known as a god for listening to prayers. Uh, and that was emphasized in that stone sculpture, and also in his main uh, temple in in Memphis, uh, there there was a big giant sculpture of ears. So, ears, yeah, ears, yeah. Because he's listening; he's always listening. He's so always listening. All right, all right. Yeah, <laughs> they're reminding you that Ptah is listening. Uh, <laughs> okay. So, so if you wanted that feeling, uh, he'd be a good guy to worship. And then, of course, there is the bull version. Um, where to be a worshiper, uh, you know, I guess you'd, you'd go the running of the bull, the bull, which, <laughs> you know, and, and witness that or or maybe go get some sort of um, 
fortune read by by watching a bull wander around its its pen. Sure. So, so you know, I I I think that on the being side, it, it's I maybe give a slight edge to Patah because of all the the violence and. and uh, such in the contendings, uh, definitely a more chill lifestyle for Patah. Yeah. yeah. Um, but on the worship side, I, I probably give the the nod to Horus. So I think this is a bit of a split for me. Mm, mm. Um, but uh, I think overall, I, I'm going to go uh, with Horus on this one. I, we will we will uh, split on this one because okay. I'm going to go Patah on both sides. I think the uh, the humiliation of so much of that period of Horace's life is hard nah, to overcome. Yeah. And I will take the chill version over that uh, metalworking, you know, having a nice craft, being able to uh, be among the people, having a cool hat. I mean, like there's, <laughs> that feels much more my style. Uh, the worship right. is, is, is closer because that, uh, that festival is certainly really, really interesting. Um, but then again, the running of the bull is pretty cool too. So I, I, I feel like that's a, it's almost a dead heat. And I just get a sense that, Based on what I hear about that, about the Horus Festival sort of getting watered down with models and then mm. priests, it just didn't have that same oomph that it started with. So, whereas the running of a bull, you can't fake that. You're getting, you're getting, you know, unless you're the bull, bull. Is age 24 and kind of on the way out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think uh, 24 think, and a half. Yeah. But, that's right. By <laughs> retirement age, uh, I will go Patah on that one. All right. So we split that one. All right. Yes. So we yes. have. Uh, Horace wins the first one, and we split the second one, and that will bring us to Good God. And this is, is simply straightforward. Which God has uh, the better character? And, and I'll go first on that one. And I think Patad does relatively well here. Um, you know, he creates the universe, or, or at least gets the ball rolling. So I think mm -hmm. that's a, a point in his his favor. Sure. Uh, he's he's pro, pro creation, pro pro people mm -hmm. um yeah we wouldn't be here without him perhaps um <laughs> right you know he, he performed that minor surgery on all the dead uh to give them a shot at the afterlife so he, yeah. he's given back to the community throughout that's that whole time right. that's right um you know and he, he's listening to prayers again he's taking time out of his day to do that um you know and in that one instance not only did he protect egypt but he did do it in a way uh, that you know, by sending those rats in, that actually prevented the battle from even happening. So, mm. actually, saved the lives of those Syrians, Syrian soldiers as well. Right, right. Just you know, kind of gave peace a chance uh, <laughs> by sending a swarm of rats into the camp. So, right. Uh, you know, if only the Beatles had thought of that. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, so he, you know, he's all he, again. He's all about life and regeneration and infrastructure week so i think those are all all pretty good vibes uh a little bit harsh uh with that worker who who uh swore in his name swore a false oath uh to patah maybe overbilled somebody for yeah. uh, some work that he did <laughs> the contractor went a little overboard yeah 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 he maybe a little double billing right um, right you know blinded the contractor who who, who overpromised and under delivered you know that was tough but, but i don't know ultimately yeah. <laughs> maybe, e even that contractor said yeah i deserved it so. he did in the end to to his grave literally <laughs> to his grave yeah <laughs> on his tombstone yeah. so so overall pretty uh pretty good not a lot of real blatant black bad marks uh, right for Padak. 
Yeah, I think similar here. I think I think with Horace, the, the good certainly outweighs the bad. We do have to point out in terms of a strike against him. So you may recall as one of the final contendings of Horace and Seth, there was this boat race where they had yep. they each created a stone boat and had to race them because, of course, you know, they had exhausted all their possibilities, of <laughs> turning into hippos, holding their breaths and all that. Uh and you know, in the end, Horace did cheat on that one. He was revealed he to uh, to do to be using a different substance in his boat, which made it actually able to float, unlike <laughs> yes. stone. Uh, so he he ended up being victorious in the eyes of the court because his father was the ultimate decider. But uh, <laughs> he did have you know a little bit of a uh, little, little bit of ambiguity when it came to his, uh, his yeah. moral compass on that one. But right. in the broader scope, I think he was certainly good to his mama, avenged his daddy, you know, did everything right there at the family level. Uh, you know, I was impressed. He, you know, he didn't necessarily forgive Set for defeating him, but he, you know, played live, right. and let, live and let live, gave him the outdying, outlying desert for a, a sort of a dignified consolation prize of retirement. You know, the equivalent of, hey, man, you fought the good fight. You better luck next time. Right. As a token of my respect, please take Phoenix and Albuquerque and have a good time. <laughs> uh, and ultimately, you know, Horace is all about protection. Dude, yeah, that's right. Just take that fight. It'll be fine. It's 115 for the next 100 years anyway. Uh, but all about protection, as he always was, and symbolized for that. So, so considering how screwy the world really was, as we learned each episode of this podcast, yeah, uh, an important and necessary public service. So, I think a, a pretty strong case for character on Horace, uh, but on both sides. So that that is a that's a yeah. tough one. Yeah. So you did you did uh, you said he was good to his mother, but there was one instance where he was not so good to his mother and he cut off her head that is true <laughs> you know I, I i i suppose that's a i i i i i left that slide because she was sort of immediately cured uh yeah she from did that. it was pieced back together so a lot of those yeah that that's true i suppose complicated <laughs> well now maybe it's not as close as i might have thought you're you're correct about that the one decapitation of your mother <laughs> everybody gets one it's like a mulligan all right. Well, yeah. you know, now that you've mentioned that, I think maybe, uh, hmm. Yeah. Maybe, I mean, maybe perhaps, perhaps he knew that she, she would not suffer anything, but it seems like in the heat of the moment, it's still, he, I, he, he was just mad. Right. But. And then some other weird stuff happened where they like, didn't she cut off his hands or something? But in any case, yes, it, it was, it was a complicated affair. Uh, yeah, I think I yeah. will, I will give, I will give Pata the edge on this one. I think, you know, yeah, I, think, you, I, I, I think I'm also, yes. Yeah. Uh, that I while overall horses is record is good and, and as, as is uh Pata is certainly by the standards of the Greeks. Right. <laughs> These guys would be up there. <laughs> um but uh I you know matricide is or attempted matricide, I guess, really, is is, is still still frowned upon. So not great. Yeah. Uh, so Unsuccessful, I'm, I'm, thankfully, but yes. Yeah, yeah. Attempted. Right. Uh, so, uh, so that gives it to Pitasa. We are tied up going into the fourth round with okay. one win for Horace, a tie, mm-hmm. one win for Pata, and this brings us to iconography. Yes. Uh, which you know, who has the better legacy here with us today, uh, in our present world? So, right. uh, you go first on this one. So. You know, Horace does appear in a few contemporary pop culture things. Uh, you know, we, we've mentioned Marvel's Moon Knight series a couple of times. He has a role in that. He shows up in the Night of the Museum movie. Uh, but most prominently, he we have the 2016 fantasy action film Gods of Egypt. Are you aware of this yeah. film? Vaguely. I've seen it on 
referenced on IMDb, but I, yes. I've not. So this was this film is actually about Horace. Horace is the main character going on okay. a quest to regain his stolen eye and save the world from set. Uh, now I was not aware. I mean, the, in the most vague terms, maybe aware of it a little bit, but it's just a big movie. So as Horace, you've got Nikolai Koster Waldau, who is of course the handsome Danish actor who played Jamie Lannister in Game of Thrones. Okay. Oh yeah. He is your Horace. Plus you got like. Chadwick Boseman is in there, Gerard Butler, Jeffrey Rush. I mean, some solid, high-caliber this, actors. Uh, this might be our first first movie review well, uh, at the end of the season. Just, just you wait, because this movie had a budget of $140 million, and yet I had barely even heard of it until preparing for this episode. So well, there's a reason why. It was very poorly received. It was a massive <laughs> box office bomb. And in the movie, they they actually they film it so that the gods are all like nine feet tall to show them as much larger than humans. And so they did that by filming it using forced perspective. Yeah. Um, so first of all, perspective, not a big Egyptian thing. So they're already they're already playing with fire there. Yeah. Uh, but they did they did it move with the camera, which is actually called the reverse Hobbit to make them look bigger. <laughs> and it's the same way they made the Hobbits look smaller. Uh, right. Now the film did not make much of an impact, but it was it was best known for being criticized for the fact that none of the main actors were of Egyptian descent. So this was a big deal. You're making this big huge big budget movie about Egypt and there's not an Egyptian person to be found in the cast. And so apart, apart from Chadwick Boseman, just a really a bunch of whiteies. So they were, they were, they were accused of Hollywood whitewashing even before the film came out. So this it was got terrible press. The studio and the director like preemptively apologized before the movie came out. <laughs> That's not good. Yeah. You know, it's not going to be exactly historically accurate. What are you going to do? But we're sorry. We, we hope you, you can look past it. And I love Custer Waldau, the actor who played Horace and Jamie Lannister. His quote is, you know, a lot of people are getting really worked up online about the fact that I'm a white actor. I'm not even playing an Egyptian. I'm an eight foot tall god who turns into a falcon. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that, that seems logical enough to me, but apparently the critics uh, were not as convinced. Uh, so there you go. So it, the reviews yep. came out. They were terrible. And in in the face of these bad reviews, the director, Alex Proyas, he responded by referring to critics themselves as, quote, diseased vultures pecking at the bones of a dying carcass who were, quote, trying to peck to the rhythm of the consensus. <laughs> it's a very poetic line, which I appreciate. But uh, yeah. uh, when you go after the critics like that, it's not it's not going to end well for you. So that was 2016. He has not directed a feature film since. It was a huge bomb. Um, you know, in full transparency, I tried to at least watch the trailer and I couldn't even make it through two minutes. I mean, it looked just... <laughs> God awful. So, uh, so yeah, that, that, that's a sort of the biggest looming, uh, piece of legacy. You know, you've got, uh, you've also got, uh, Horace is the name of one of those, um, those masked Mexican professional wrestlers. Apparently a, a mm. very big figure is, is, is named Horace, uh, an arachnid named, uh, named Horace, a pseudo scorpion genus, uh, in the family old P day. Um, you've got an asteroid, of course, a crater on Mercury. Um, Horace is the name of an unmanned aerial vehicle, and these name for the power system that converts radioactive decay heat into electricity in order to power a spacecraft, which seems very important if you're on a spacecraft. You're using yeah, the radioactivity sure. to, to power it. Um, also, interestingly, the name Horus is the name of a New Age religious movement in France during the late 20th century, which sounds rather cultish. Yeah. Um, the founders of, of this religious organization, this kind of New Agey cult, were ultimately convicted of two crimes – forgery and unauthorized practice of medicine. <laughs> right. That's that's a kind of a daily double you don't hear about that often but uh but apparently that that was enough and yeah. over the course of 20 or 30 years Horace 
the religious movement went away. So uh, an interesting sort of spread of, of cultural influences, not, not, too, uh, not too deep, but uh, certainly a lot of variety within them. Interesting. All right. So uh, on Ptah, uh, um, you know, again, he, he, I think, was a little bit disadvantaged because his, his real heyday uh, was earlier. Uh, and then by the time Egypt became more meshed within the larger Mediterranean world, right. he was a little bit uh, on the second string. But he still has some things. So uh, I was able to turn up. Uh, so there is Ptah acid. Uh, which stands for phosphortunistic acid, and has actually nothing to do with Pata. Uh, so there's, <laughs> there's in Woodbury, New Jersey, there is the Pata Initiative, okay, and that stands for Professional Trainers Advancing Human Initiative. Again, has nothing to do with no. the god Ptah. At least not. I mean, maybe they 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 chose the name because they found it was an Egyptian god, but but they have an acronym that sure. goes into it. Uh, so there is uh, the Studio Ptah Jewelry Studio in New York City. Mm -hmm. um, there is the 1970 uh, jazz album, which is the fourth album by Alice Coltrane, hmm. uh, who was the wife of John Coltrane. Uh, called Ptah the El Duad, and it is termed by critics very much unlike uh, the gods of Egypt to be a <laughs> transcendent masterpiece. <laughs> wow. I was so, not aware that uh, Mrs. Coltrane was a musician. Yeah, so, so uh, she apparently she was and, and had some, some critically acclaimed albums. So, I'll check that out. Uh, yeah. And then I, you know, I looked at the names. Uh, there, there's less than five babies uh, born in the U.S. per year with the name Ptah, so it is not so tracked it, by the a very low BPM rate. Yes, very very low BPM yes, rate. Yes. Uh, prior to this episode coming out, of course. Right. That's uh, right. <laughs> and I, I could not locate any Ptah holster. Oh man. Uh, uh, there were two Ptah mystery books that set in ancient Egypt that are currently in in print. But I could not find any romance or young adult fiction oh, bummer. Uh, centered on Ptah. However, there are a couple things that are, are interesting ones uh, that you know, maybe pull it around for him a little bit. So uh, you, you're familiar with the Academy Awards, right? I am. So they first met in 1929 for their first banquet awards ceremony. Hmm. And this is in the midst of, you know, kind of King Tut uh, mania. Sure. In, in the U.S. So uh, the statu statuettes given out that night and every night, every year since then, are an Art Deco version of the statue of Ptah that was found in Tutankhamun's tomb. Oh, I didn't so, know that. And supposedly uh, these statues were also given out by the pharaohs uh, to their best craftsmen uh, as sort of a, a symbol of of being the best at their wow. craft. Fascinating. Okay. So every year that's given out. So and then and finally, um, an alternative name for Memphis, uh, the city, um, as the center of the Ptah cult was Hitka Ptah, hmm. uh, which stood for House of the Soul of Ptah, and so in Greek. This became the name for all people from the Nile Delta region. And, of course, that was changed into Aegyptos, 
and later in Latin uh, gave us the name for the people and country of Egypt and Egyptians. Oh. Which means that. House of the soul of Ptah. So now uh, we walk like the people from the house of the soul of Ptah. Yes. And that's what I got. Very good. Wow. Well, I'm fairly confident that there must not be any young adult or erotic fiction about Ptah, <laughs> because if anybody could find it, you're the guy. Yeah. <laughs> Well, interesting. I uh, some of those last couple, the Oscar thing, uh, the the sort of nomenclature of Egypt. Those are those are are pretty big uh, after effects of the legacy. Yeah, uh, a little bit indirect. Right. Um, I think the fact that in our present day, as bad as it was, that there was a feature film featuring one <laughs> of our two contestants, uh, which I'm quite certain did not win any Oscars. So no statues no. of Ptah in the, uh, in the <laughs> for anybody no. of the producers there. Um, I think I will give Horace the edge on this one because of that uh, that work of Grant Cinema. Uh, Ill received though it was, uh, I think that is the slightly bigger legacy. Uh, that may the, the the lack of quality of the movie may may tarnish that legacy going forward. <laughs> right. At least it, he remains in the conversation. And that that eye of Horace has some staying power. I think. Yes, uh, that's that true. that is a symbol of, of Egypt even today. Right. Um, and I, I think the kind of those two last ones are, are kind of cool factoids and but there are things that, that you know almost nobody who, who wins an oscar has any idea that that is a statue yeah. of Ptah, and, and it is a little bit of a just a timing issue that they started that ceremony right after the discovery of that tomb and, and then there was a sort of a um you know a real heightened interest in everything uh from it uh as you can well imagine so I'm going to join you uh, in, in voting for uh, Horace on this yes. one. Yes. And so, th so that's going to bring us to uh, 2 1 1 and into our uh, matinee idol, which, if uh, Pata wins, will throw us once again oh my goodness. into a tie. Uh, and if Horace wins or, or can pull out the tie, uh, he'll, he'll get the clean win. Uh, so, Matt Matinee Idol is again. Uh, who would make the best movie or limited series? Um, important uh, category for determining who who we're going to bring back. And so I'm going to go first uh, on this one. And uh, you know, when I was thinking about it, it took me a little while to to. Uh, find you know what was the most interesting thing what what's the most cinematic thing about uh pata and, and i think i was sort of interested in that apis bull side of pata right uh and i thought of, of maybe something of, of uh a buddy road comedy so <laughs> yeah it would start off in about four four ninety five ce common era you know christian bishop of memphis and his entourage are are outside the at this point slightly shabby derelict temple of Ptah and an adjoining uh, temple of the Apis Bowl, uh, and and the the bishop is waving an order in his hand uh, to hand over the temple to the archdiocese. Mm -hmm. Inside, you have this slightly shabby last high priest of Ptah right. with his assistant looking kind of grab anything left of value that's not nailed down on their way out, uh, and that that includes the one cow uh, that is remaining, uh, but not the elderly past its expiration date 
current Apis bowls. So <laughs> the priest says a spell in this version to to move the spirit of the god Ptah into the Apis, and then the assistant drowns the bull while the priest slips out the side door hmm. uh, with the cow and the valuables. So, but that of course is not the end. No, of either Apis or Ptah because uh, he will just be reincarnated. That's right. Uh, so at that moment, a storm passes overhead, and the field outside of Memphis, uh, a field is struck by lightning, uh, creating the next generation of the Apis bull. But now when it is born, because he has performed that spell to move the spirit of Ptah into it, the bull will have both its own spirit and Ptah uh, living in it at the same time. So we're going to get to hear their voices Okay. Throughout their next fifteen hundred year journey oh, wow. as the Apis Bull, now housing Ptah and the Bull, uh, voiced by uh, Jermaine Clement and Taiki Waiku. Um, <laughs> uh, Jermaine Clement being the Apis Bull, right? Uh, Taiki being being a Ptah. Um, never really explained why why they happen to be from New Zealand. They yeah, just, but <laughs> both of them, yes, <laughs> just are. Uh, you know, that's the, maybe the the best actual derivation of how an ancient Egyptian would have spoken English. We don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, possibly. Right. Uh, so uh, in, in that version, you know, Apis dies in dramatic fashion at the end. Uh, so then we get, you know, through the years, we have an episode where they're brought to Spain with the Muslim conquest. And mm. we have some me medieval uh, cow action. <laughs> we have... <laughs> 800 years later, Apis Bull is brought to Mexico. We got some bullfighting okay. uh, going on there, uh, you know, with uh, Ptah not being too comfortable with it. Uh, eventually, <laughs> an art incarnation of the Apis Bull is driven up to West Texas. So we got some cattle driving and, and some, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Old West stuff going on. Sure. And eventually, finally, it goes up to Chicago. Oh. And specifically... 137 DeCoven Street in the 1860s. I don't know if that rings a bell to you, Matthew. Would but that, that be is... uh, Upton Sinclair's uh, The Jungle, or am I, am I mixing that up? No, this is where the Great Fire of Chicago oh. starts. Oh, of course. <laughs> the Mrs. O'Leary's O'Leary's cow, yes. Yes, though it was a bull in this version. <laughs> That's the twist. Yeah, so... <laughs> So, you know, in this 1860s, uh, Chicago's not up to Patara or Apis' standards. You know, the industrial no. pollution, yeah. industrial slaughterhouse. Uh, you know, he's the, 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 his cow lady friends aren't up to his standards. The, the architecture's <laughs> a little slipshod. So it, it's a low point for him. <laughs> yeah. But then a new cow is brought in to, into the barn. And, and who could it be? Yes, it is Sekhmet trapped <laughs> in cow form. So, you know, get some cow eyes made between the two of them. Uh, maybe eyes. a su suggested off-screen <laughs> marital <laughs> reunion. Uh, so, uh, with his bovine goddess of destruction. Yeah. And that allows them both to regain their human form and uh, god shapes after, you know, 300, uh, 1,376 years. <laughs> uh and and so they think maybe Chicago can be more, but it's time to clean the town up and start the fire, burn the city down. Okay. Uh, and and then of course you get the the great fire, and and after the destruction, 
Ptah in his human form comes back and is a leading force for rebuilding the city and the great standard of architectural movement that becomes Chicago. That's and right. It's there forever. Meanwhile, uh, the Apis is freed and, and eventually uh, his form settles on Benny the Bull uh, for <laughs> Thank you. the Chicago Bulls mascot. <laughs> wow. So unlike Billy Joel, they did start the fire. <laughs> they very much did. Yes. Some, yeah. Fascinating. That is a... Uh... That is some cinematic sweep there. I think that you may have to go limited series on that. One. I think, <laughs> well, I for sure. It. Yeah, that, you can't fit that into two hours. <laughs> Each one of those is an episode. Yes, like. and that's uh, that's impressive. Some magical realism, some 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 historical value, uh, and, and you've got some voice casting of a couple of uh, New New Zealand's favorites. You can, yes. Hopefully, uh, Brett McKenzie can at least get a, a cameo somewhere so you can round oh, out sure. the rest of. It. <laughs> Very good. Uh, that's that's, uh, that's a tough act to follow. Uh, for All right. Well, I, I will do see, what I can. <clears throat> see what you can do. All right. So for Horace, um, Andrew, do you do you remember Smell-O-Vision? <laughs> I bet, yeah, vaguely, yeah. So this was, of course, an experimental movement in the mid-20th century. Uh, there were certain movies that were screened in theaters where they would actually pump odors into the theater <laughs> yeah. to match the content of the film so that the viewers could smell the action. A bit of a gimmick, you know, but at the time they were trying to expand the uh, the scope of of the cinema. Uh, premiered in 1960 with a film called uh, Scent of Mystery. Great title. <laughs> Natural fit. In which the smell vision process, you know, they would inject, in this case, 30 different aromas throughout the film into the seats of the theater. Um, and not just, you know, purely for kicks. Like the, These smells would actually communicate critical details of the movie. They really, you needed that information to follow it. So... I do feel as as a as a brand guy, I feel the need to mention that Smellovision was just one brand name that was attempting to do this at the time. There were a couple <laughs> of other entrants, uh, G- General Electric, uh, had something called Smellorama, which was there, <laughs> and there was another company called Aromarama, which uh, tried to get into the action. But Smellovision, uh, probably the most successful. But I bring this up because you'll recall from earlier that Horace's eye, the eye of Horace, was stolen by Set in the midst of those contendings, and that eye was cut into six pieces, each representing one of the five senses. Oh, yeah. Yeah, That's the yeah. Egyptian sense of thinking. So for this reason, it occurs to me the story of Horus should not be told, if it cannot properly be told, merely through an audiovisual medium like a movie or a limited series. It, it I think, requires a multidimensional, even multi-sensory experience uh, <laughs> to match that story. So in this multi-dimensional, multi-sensory experience, you, the viewer, you take on the character of Horus and you experience his battle for the throne with all of your senses. So, yes, of course, you're going to see the action from your perspective in, in 8K, in 3D, uh, until his eye is gouged out, in which kind of case you lose the sense of depth. Uh, you lose some peripheral vision. Uh, you can hear it all. So you can hear all the insults being bandied about by set. You can hear him when he accuses you of having bad breath because you've recently been breastfeeding. Uh, in the courtroom, and like smell-o-vision, you can catch a whiff of things as the story progresses. You get a whiff of the hippo dung, you get a whiff of the, the spilt seed, um, and in choice moments, you can actually, there's the sense of touch is factored in, so you can feel the air pumped into your hippo-like lungs as you hold your breath underwater, because you're experiencing this viscerally. Uh, perhaps you can even taste the the cursed lettuce of Seth's garden, although you'll recall with that particular uh, salad dressing, this would decidedly not be vegan friendly. <laughs> and yes, you, of course, will also experience the Egyptian sixth sense because you were thinking about everything. And just to be sure you're getting that sixth sense, 
you receive live commentary from Bruce Willis throughout the performance, which could get a little confusing for everyone involved, frankly. So, yes, this this multi-dimensional, multi-sensory experience would require a serious effort, serious rig to pull off for the viewer. You'd need some kind of virtual reality headset. You'd need surround sound, a variety of props for food and aromas. You'd need some kind of lung-filling apparatus. And, of course, you would need to bring Bruce Willis out of retirement to deliver the live commentary. For that alone, the budget would be extraordinary, uh, even even topping uh, Gods of Egypt at $140 million. <laughs> uh, scaling your viewership would certainly be a challenge because there's only so many people you could bring this experience to. Right, Probably right. ultimately a bigger box office bomb than than Gods of Egypt. Uh, but I would think it would be a, a a cinematic experience not seen since those those halcyon days of smell <laughs> vision So Horus, the multi-sensory experience, uh, available soon for, for viewing, and feeling through all your senses, only at select theaters, uh, starting with the screening room at Bruce Willis's house at his earliest uh, availability. Interesting. So there so there I, you have it. Yeah, so I, I, I'd heard of Smell Vision, but I hadn't realized that's what they were doing. I I sort of had this vague memory that there was something where you, you had something that you, was, you carried and you were supposed to scratch it and sniff it at a certain point. Mm, in no, the they, they were right, right, this, up this, chairs. Yeah, they were in the right, seats. Yeah. Yep. Okay, yeah. Maybe that was the home. Maybe that was the the uh, DVD version. Could <laughs> very well be. <laughs> we would come with one of those. So, ah, that that is a, a, an interesting uh, interesting take uh, on Horace. So, um, you know, I uh, I I think uh, I I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Pata on this one. Yeah, I'm gonna go with uh, uh you know that that buddy comedy. Uh, you know sweep throughout throughout history ended up in a, in the great city of Chicago. I, I it's hard for me to deny that, particularly with the hometown setting at the end. So I uh and given the extreme experimental staging of the second one, I think I think I will join you. So uh <laughs> so I think Patai gets my vote as well. Which was that does that take us to a that, that takes us a, to a tie. Yeah. A patai? Yes. <laughs> it does take us to a patai. So uh I will take us a moment to get to the uh, fates aligned in order to um, figure out just who is going to be the winner. Wow. I can't uh, believe we have two tiebreakers, two episodes yes. in a row. No, just that shows we that do. You, can never, you can never predict where the fates are going to lead you. No, you, you, you cannot. So uh, let me share my screen so that you can enjoy this along with me. Uh, and we have the fate invoker is, is prepared. Fates are invoked, and mm-hmm. Horus. Horus is it. your winner. Yeah, never, never go against Horus in in a trial contest. <laughs> it's right. Whether whether it is a tribunal, an eighty year battle, or a battle won in the cells of an Excel spreadsheet, <laughs> Horus will come out on top. Horus will come on top. So, all right. There is Excellent. our winner. Very good. Well, we will we will wrap it up there with Horace being our victor, winning the Golden Ale this week. Uh, we are approaching uh, the end of our second season. We will have yep. some details in our next episode about the end game there. But we're getting we're getting close, and we've got quite yeah, yep. a pantheon together to uh, to battle it out for that finale to see who comes up on top and joins our season one winner in that pantheon. Thank uh, you, Golden Ale. That's right. So more on that uh, in our next episode. But for then, uh, as you, as always, Andrew, uh, a pleasure. Yes. Our thanks, of course, to Andy Snow for the music. Uh, you, know, you know where to find us. Please leave a review, like, subscribe, tell your right. friends. 
And uh, a reminder again, go to the official God versus God playlist. Version two, Rock Like right. Egyptian, features two songs from each episode, including this one tonight, to be revealed when this episode drops. There we go. So oh, there it is. Well, thank you, my friend. It is uh, always a pleasure. Well done. Yep. And uh, thank you, folks, for listening. And uh, until next time, we will see you uh, shortly with episode seven right down the road. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.